Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from alpha to, omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 80th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Tuesday the 11th of July 2017 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week I'm delighted to welcome John Helmer to the show, the man behind the excellent Dances with Bears blog. John is a journalist working in Moscow since 1989, the author of several books on military and political topics, and has previously worked as an advisor to the US President Jimmy Carter and the Greek Prime Minister Andreas Papandreou. We discuss the current state of the Russian economy, the economic war currently being waged against Russia, and the prospects for the geopolitical and economic future of the Russian state. But before all that, I have a few people to thank. First off, the very generous once-off donation from Anthony J, and the new monthly subscriber Paul H. Now to the interview. So John, I read a report you had on your blog, Dances with Bears, recently by the Finnish economist John Helvig, where he was talking about the current state of the of the Russian economy. Can you tell us a bit about this report and who John Helvig is? John Helvig is a, a veteran resident of Moscow. He's uh, trained as a lawyer and then as an economist. Uh, he runs a, a consultancy called Awara, and that provides accounting, legal, uh, and other kinds of uh, skilled advice to investors and businesses trying to set up from abroad in Russia. That's what he does for a living. He's been doing that since the early 90s, uh, and he does a very good job at that. Uh, He has a clear uh, and independent assessment of how the Russian business environment works from the micro level, from advising people on how to do it and how how to learn from mistakes and what the mistakes are, to the macro level. So uh, he's basically uh, produced a report designed to say the program of economic warfare, which the United States and the European Union uh, started at the beginning, in the, in the spring of, of 2014, against Russia, ostensibly to punish Russia and to motivate Russia in relation to uh, the Crimean secession and accession to the Russian Federation, and in relation to the eastern, uh, the conflict in eastern Ukraine or the Donbas, to motivate uh, Russia to change uh, the outcomes in, in those on those two war fronts. And uh, Helovig has explained that sanctions have not had the impact they were intended to have, have not caused the amount of damage they were believed to have, to have generated as almost as much pain on the European side for loss of export and investment business, and uh, constituted no motivation at all in the way they were purportedly intended. That's John's message. So essentially, they didn't change the Russian foreign policy in Crimea of course not. And that's because that policy can't be changed. Uh, there are several obvious reasons for that, and your listeners know them pretty well by now. 
Well, they certainly won't be aware if they ever read uh, the likes of the Financial Times, the Guardian, the Times, uh, even the Private Eye is a Russian-hating journal, as good as it is on investigating uh, British uh, sinfulness. It's a failure to help its readers understand uh, abroad. So, hard to explain. Uh, The Crimea has never been Ukrainian, except for a very short period of time in which it was assigned to the Ukrainian administrative unit of the Soviet Union. Okay? Uh, It was part of the Russian Empire. Uh, It was uh, Russian-speaking. It was, even in 1991, when a referendum was held, the Crimeans wanted to be part of Russia and agreed to be uh, part of the Ukraine under special privileges uh, of autonomy under the so-called independent Ukrainian constitution. Uh, So it was no surprise at all when a second referendum, the one of March 2014, produced massive Crimean support for becoming part of the Russian Federation. So if you take the view as many opponents of Crimea accession to Russia take the view that Crimean public opinion should be disregarded. If you take the view that the uh, referendum of March 2014 is illegal, then you can't make any sense of the uh, legality of the Soviet Politburo under Khrushchev, a, a Ukrainian by territory of origin, um, assigning administration of the Crimea to the Ukrainian unit uh, of the Soviet Union um, in, in the, after 1954. So the issue of legality is something that I invite listeners to forget about uh, because it, it you enter a, a thicket of conflicting laws which make no difference to the underlying linguistic, religious, national, ethnic affiliation of Crimea with Russia. There is a minority in Crimea, a tiny minority of Muslim Tatars. Their minority rights deserve to be respected. That's true. But equally, they are such a minority as to be irrelevant in dictating the future of of the territory as it was decided in March. But it would not have been decided that way had there not been a an illegal overthrow of the elected government of the Ukraine in Kiev in, in, in February of 2014. And it was that overthrow, that putsch, that coup d'etat, which triggered the events in Crimea, which changed the character of the Ukraine politically. And uh, that provoked uh, several responses on the part of the Russian leadership, which were not intended, simply not intended. Those who think that Putin, um, President Vladimir Putin of Russia, was intending to expand the Russian empire are simply talking nonsense. But, I mean, we're so far down the the track of warfare that uh, if I say these things, nobody's really going to listen to my account of the facts because they've read interminable encyclopedias of other people's accounts of the facts, and I despair at trying to persuade anybody. In fact, Tom, I don't think we can spend our time constructively trying to persuade people of uh, what the facts are. They were lost the beginning of this war, and it is a war. 
But it's no longer about Crimea. It's no longer about the Ukraine. It's about the survival of Russia. And in that respect, what happened in the Ukraine was the beginning of an effort by uh, the United States primarily uh, to change the regime in Russia. And sanctions, which have purportedly been based for their rationale on punishing Russia in relation to what's happened in the Ukraine, are intended essentially to uh, destroy the Russian regime as uh, the United States thinks it runs. Mr. Putin, his alleged cronies, the way capital uh, is organized and invested in Russia and so on. So this is the same kind of techniques we see being used, say, also in, say, Venezuela, for example, by the U.S. state. Indeed, yes. Regime change is a quick term for it. Yes. So getting back to these sanctions, what was the effect of these sanctions? How, how bad were they and how did the Russian economy perform under these sanctions? Well, the, the sanctions started, U.S. sanctions started with particular uh, focus on individuals that's individual Ukrainians associated with the Yanukovych regime, particular Russian officials associated with military, political, strategic, and economic support for the Crimean accession. They were then expanded to so-called cronies of the president of Russia, and among those, some well-known oligarch-sized individuals. Gennady Timchenko uh, controls the movement of oil in Russia and a great many other things through uh, a holding, uh, several asset holdings and other uh, groups of uh, so-called friends of uh, the president, the Rottenberg brothers, uh, Mr. Kovalchuk, who controls the Russia Bank and so on. I'm not sure if, if listeners want to listen to a kind of recital that sounds a bit like the front end of War and Peace. The names aren't important. Uh, the names uh, simply reflect the beginning of the calculation in Washington, then the Obama administration, that the way to attack Putin was to attack the wealth of his friends. And that was uh, the second stage. The third stage was to expand sanctions uh, from uh, individuals to companies, companies in Crimea, companies trading with Crimea, uh, and then basically the military goods producers of the country, including, uh, let's say, the Almazante, a, a corporation which produced the book missile, which allegedly brought down uh, Malaysian Airlines MH17 on July 17, 2014. All these sanctions were purportedly based on uh, events in the Ukraine. And as punishment, on the, on the one hand, uh, for alleged Russian complicity involvement, so on, though the, though the acts were never proven and still not proven in most cases, and second, to deter and encourage change of behavior, okay? But uh, expanding from the military-industrial complex and the companies of the individuals, we, we had what were called sectoral sanctions as distinct from individual ones, and that gradually began to expand the American attack on key sectors of the Russian economy, oil and gas, banking, capital investment. 
of all kinds. The latest round of sanctions, which have yet to be introduced, but which have passed the United States Senate by a lopsided 98 votes to two, would in fact escalate uh, the war against the Russian economy to include virtually everything. That is uh, shipping, railways, all forms of finance, insurance, and on and on and on. Now, when you get to that level, it's a form of, uh, of warfare against the state. It far exceeds the level of sanctions the United States uh, government under Franklin Roosevelt applied against Japan, which triggered the Japanese decision to go to war faster than they would have and to go to war to the east against Pearl Harbor. Uh, once you put a country under the kind of pressure that uh, the Senate sanctions, the new round of sanctions inflicts, then you tell a country there is no alternative uh, forward, there'll be no future for you, and there is no, in fact, no uh, exit. You're trying to change the regime, and uh, that's what uh, the U.S. government is trying to do with those sanctions, and there's no, uh, there was no negotiating about that between uh, Mr. Trump and Mr. Putin in uh, Hamburg uh, last Friday because uh, Mr. Trump, first of all, has no power to stop them. Uh, if he were to veto the legislation, uh, the Senate, and I expect soon the House, will simply override his veto. There are more than two-thirds majorities in both houses support the sanctions. So the United States Congress is going to war with Russia uh, at a level that's unprecedented. Now, what John Hellevig is saying, until now, uh, none of the sanctions applied have had the kind of impact on the Russian economy that was expected or intended. And uh, John's report also explains that much of the damage to Russian GDP levels, Russian public income spending and so forth, that damage has followed from the collapse of export prices, oil and gas prices, rather than from sanctions themselves. So it's the drop in oil prices and gas that has affected the economy more than these US-led sanctions. That's, that's the argument of the report, uh, in part. I should have said as I was talking that alongside the, as it were, stated sanctions, the, the ones put in the, in the government gazette by the Office of uh, Sanctions, foreign assets control of the United States Treasury, alongside those is an extremely active uh, campaign of informal sanctions. Every CIA station abroad, every uh, U.S. consulate, every U.S. embassy abroad, every U.S. economic attache abroad is instructed to pursue with a range of local economic targets, banks, insurance companies, uh, exporters, machine builders, you name it, they, they are all targets for informal briefings, visits by U.S. officials saying, we don't think it's a good idea for you to do the kind of business you've been doing with Russia. And if you continue, you may run into serious problems of conducting business with the United States. And then the U.S. official these are, uh, says, look how much you're earning by selling to the United States. And look how much you're earning by selling to Russia. Now, if you go on selling to Russia, or you sign this new contract that you've been talking about, or if you undertake this financing, or this uh, purchase of bonds, or this uh, dealing in shares, if you do that, 
you put at risk your business in the United States. And this informal sanctions process is now being formalized in the Senate bill. Okay? So that uh, has been underway and that, that has a crippling effect on the flow of capital into Russia. And why is that more crippling than John Hellevink's report explains? Because Russia has been stripped of capital by its own people. The oligarch system of Russia, and this isn't something that John's report focuses on, focuses on much. Uh, he's told me he's going to be focusing on that in a, in a, in a sequel. But the, uh, the Russian capital available to finance growth has been stripped out of the economy and turned into boats and football teams and mansions and investment abroad by the men called the oligarchs. And they're called the oligarchs for two reasons. One is they dominate large chunks of the national wealth. And second, they control through that economic power most of the political decisions that are made in the country. How much power does Putin have to reduce that flow of capital abroad? And has he reduced it since he's been in power? He has the power. He has not used it to that effect. Could sanctions like these change the political dynamics whereby he might? Uh, far be it from me on a Tuesday morning to, to, to speculate about what Mr. Putin might do. Uh, he's had ample opportunity to show what he says he will do with respect to the oligarchs. He has not done any of it. Yeah. And that's when, the, uh, when a, a categorical statement like that obliges a person who's saying it, like me, to, to go from topic to topic, oligarch to oligarch, and examine what Mr. Putin's choices were with respect to a coal oligarch or an oil oligarch or an aluminium oligarch uh, and, and analyze what the outcomes were, what the choices were, what the outcomes were. And none of them show a, a diminution of oligarch power. On the contrary, during periods of crisis, economic crisis and recession, those oligarchs have gotten more powerful because they've, mo they've been able to mobilize their cash and as assets in the country have diminished in value, they bought them up. So what will happen and what is happening today uh, is that state money through state banks is being channeled through uh, the oligarch groups uh, and they're buying up more and more and concentrating more and more of the national wealth. Now, the president of the country certainly has the power to say that's what he wants or that's what he doesn't want, but he's not saying so. And so what we have at the moment is a process of increasing inequality, of increasing concentration of wealth in Russia, such that Russia has become one of the most unequal economies in Europe. And that has nothing to do with sanctions. It has everything to do with the way in which domestic policy priorities are set by the central bank, by the government, and of course by the president. One side effect of these sanctions was a, a diversification of the Russian economy. Is this this kind of a, an accidental positive effect of these sanctions? Well, it's uh, let's take it bit by bit. One of the retaliations that the Russian side introduced in August of 2014 was to put a counter sanction against imports of European foodstuffs. And that has had... Uh, an import substitution effect 
a protection for Russian agriculture and pr protection for Russian food producers um, so that they can begin to invest and grow and process and produce and manufacture food products uh, that will sell uh, more effectively in the Russian market uh, at a price they can afford compared to the European foodstuffs which have been barred. That's apples from Poland and cheese from France and so on. Much of that process has failed because, for example, Polish apples continue to pour into Russia through Belarus and through other countries carrying false designations. Uh, the government of Russia is, for some reason, unable to stop the flow of imported goods which are legally banned. That's a problem for Russian apple growers. It will take years before Russian apple growing can develop sufficiently to supply the market with, with a comparable volume as Poland's been able to do. Meanwhile, there's a huge illegal trade in contraband apples. On the other hand, it's true that while the sanctions are up and counter-sanctions are up, tomato growing, uh, uh, market gardening, gardening uh, production of the fruit and vegetables under plastic has received an enormous impetus to investment along supported by state loans and uh, subsidies for interest and that sort of thing. So there is substantial import substitution going on in, in the food processing sector. The investment in grains, in meats like pork, chicken, that was going on before the war and before the sanctions. And Russia is, has the capacity, if, it, if the capital is applied, to produce, to be one of the world's top, top three, top five wheat exporters and to begin to produce and export meat, pork, for example, even chicken. So the sanctions process has increased the drive to self-sufficiency in that area. In manufacturing, in substitution uh, for imported manufacturers, the ruble devaluation has hurt the ability of uh, Russian producers and manufacturers to import equipment. So they've had to increase domestic production. Uh, John Helvig's argument is that the uh, the adaptation of the economy to self-sufficiency has been very rapid. And he makes the point, several points, several statistical points that, that are worth remembering. And he's making them emphatically. First of all, Russia imports a far smaller proportion of goods and services as a, as a percentage of GDP, of gross domestic product, than many other countries of the world. That means it's already more self-sufficient than others. And the current process will increase that degree of self-sufficiency. But at the same time, there are other negative trends. And John has spent some time emphasizing the positive, but there are equally way, uh, the latest statistics show that real income, consumer spending, have all ground have all continued to decline this year and that the growth of investment in in industry and in manufacturing in exports uh, also ground to a halt 
in the month of June. Now, I don't want to bore you and the listeners with economic statistics. I leave that to Mr. Putin in his regular national talk shows to spin economic statistics at you. So I think you need a kind of summing up and you need some words that emphasize the trend. And the trend isn't good. Believe me, it's not good. On the one hand, income isn't recovering, so demand for domestic production isn't recovering. Second, most businessmen, Russians, the people who are going to supply the goods the people will buy are deeply pessimistic about the future. So they're not investing. And you don't have to get too close to Russian capital to realize how much of it's running away. And if folks are in London... You don't have to leave your radios or your, your digital devices to listen to this to go too far before you'll see a Russian capitalist uh, glad to be in London spending money on himself and his family uh, far, far away from home. And that's a, a process of capital outflow which regrettably continues to the detriment of, of the homeland. And you don't have massive economic revival when most of your domestic capital is running away. Another interesting thing that was in the report was that it said that the German GDP or Russian GDP will be greater than German GDP in a couple of years. On, on what measure? That, that seems startling to me looking at the GDP figures. Well, uh, folks need to understand I'm not an economist. I, I was trained as a political scientist and a sociologist, and I'm, I'm not the guy to talk today or any day about economic statistics or economic projections. What I can tell you by reading, like you can read John's report, you read mine, then you click to open John's, uh, is that John has emphasized that making comparisons between economies in a common currency isn't an effective comparison especially if one of the currencies, the ruble, for example, has been heavily devalued against the euro or the dollar, as has occurred since 2014. What you need to do, he, he says, and the logic's kind of commonsensical, isn't it, that uh, the way to measure gross domestic product and compare one country's with another is to compare comparable purchasing power. Uh, it's the Mac Burger test, which you sometimes see in, in slick magazines uh, like The Economist. In other words, what does it cost in local currency to buy this some common product like a McDonald's hamburger? And that's purchasing power parity. You take the same product and you look at what it costs uh, one country to another and you compare those values rather than uh, compare a value of domestic production at a devalued common currency. And on that basis, John is saying the Russian economy will surpass the German one. Well, you can put him on your program next, Tom, and he'll explain to you exactly what he means. I'm just summarizing here. Politically, sociologically, doesn't mean a heck of a lot for Russian consumers, nor does it mean a heck of a lot for Russian business investment. The sentiment, the business confidence index is negative, not as negative as it was last December, but it's negative. That means folks think conditions will get worse in the months ahead. 
That's a serious negative. It's not a positive. And that's a domestic matter, not an American regime-changing Brussels-type problem. That's a problem that must be solved at home. It's also uh, the case that income, spent, uh, the available cash in people's pockets from salary or pensions got a boost between January and March because the federal government substantially increased pensions. And that money went into the shops, it went into all sorts of things and generated index measurements that made the Russian economy look as if it was growing much faster than it actually is. And most of that effect has, has evaporated uh, by the month of June. So if you compare June numbers to May numbers, which John couldn't do because he wrote his report between April and May, you compare June numbers to the previous, you see the confidence and the uh, level of performance of the economy have returned from positive 1% to 3% overall to zero. We are stagnating. And confidence, and you can't talk at people and tell them otherwise. Everybody understands that's the real position. So getting back to the geopolitics somewhat of the sanctions, is this attempt by the US sanctions to isolate Russia's economy, is that going to inadvertently push the, the Russians and the Chinese together into a warmer embrace and cause the Asian continent to become essentially a much more interlinked economy? And is this perhaps in the long-term interests of the Russian economy? In theory, um, that's the only alternative direction for Russia. Russia is short of capital, in part because the Americans plan to cut it off entirely from abroad. Uh, uh, that is from the, the part of international capital that the United States can control. That leaves China and India and a few smaller Asian powers and the Arab powers, Saudi Arabia and Qatar and others, as sources of capital to substitute for the international capital out of the city of London, Frankfurt, Paris, and New York. In theory, this pivots Russia, to use these fatuous phrases that politicians and think tanks like to use, pivots Russian policy towards the East. And certainly, as the United States has made an enemy of China also, there's a natural strategic momentum behind integrating the two needs of the two great, these two great economies, the Chinese being the bigger of them, closer together, and to serve their common interests. And the North Korean crisis is a very interesting case in point where Chinese and Russian interests are being driven closer together than they were by the aggressiveness, inconsistency, and madness of uh, Trumpian policy, the total refusal of either that president or any of his underlings to contemplate negotiating reduced risk with the North Koreans themselves and then punishing or threatening to punish China for not doing enough uh, to the same end. That kind of policy is driving both Russia and China strategically together. And if they're being driven strategically together, it makes sense for them to do a, a wide range of things together. But I have to con have to, to let you know, have to qualify the general theory 
by pointing out it's very difficult for Russian businessmen to work with the Chinese and very difficult for the Chinese to work with Russian businessmen. They don't trust each other. They calculate business differently. Chinese are far more flexible and oriented to uh, short-term pricing. Russians far more oriented to long-term production targets. And uh, there's a very strong interest on the part of Chinese to get operational control of enterprises in which they invest substantial sums of money uh, to prevent the money being stolen. Pretty natural, normal, a prudent approach to investment abroad. And Russia is a very tricky and difficult place for Chinese to operate. And vice versa, very little Russian uh, investment in China as such. What about the Chinese investment in the so-called Silk Road? Does this open up opportunities for integrating of the two economies? Well, I think I've already answered that as in general terms. Every time Chinese delegations meet Russian delegations at prime ministerial, presidential level or economic commission level, a whole kit bag of of investment agreements, promises to invest, memorandum of understanding are rolled out. Transportation, shipping, gas, oil, you name it, it's rolled out to stress what Russia needs to try to convey to American partners. Russia will make it with an Eastern orientation. How much of this materializes uh, remains to be seen. China's have got very powerful interests that are not necessarily adverse to Russian but competitive and uh, not necessarily complementary in steel making, in coal pricing, in price of other raw materials, semi-finished goods, Chinese and Russians don't always see eye to eye. So along the Silk Road, there are bound to be big potholes. And it's not easy for those two sides to negotiate fixes, repairs, common agreements. But they're doing a much better job with goodwill in the face of the enemy. And the enemy manifests himself every single day with provocation. And that helps drive Russians and Chinese to bury their differences. Just this week, we've had the G20 meeting in Hamburg, Germany. What can we learn from the interactions of the leaders? Well, uh, starting with the obvious, guess who didn't come to dinner? From a British point of view, there hasn't been such an international meeting in which the British prime minister performed as an invisibility. The ghost that didn't come to dinner, Mrs. May, was virtually invisible. That's one of the effects of uh, Mrs. May's personal loss of credibility at home uh, and one of the effects of the uh, reaction to uh, Brexit on the part of the Europeans. You saw a lot of Mr. Macron jumping around. Um, Everybody in Europe tried to brown nose 
the President of the United States. Uh, Mrs. Merkel tried to brown nose him. Uh, Mr. Tusk, the Polish, former Polish Prime Minister, now head of uh, the European Union, tried to brown nose him. Um, Macron tried to brown nose him. All sorts of people did uh, with uh, varying degrees of uh, photo opportunity and success. Uh, but Mrs. May was nowhere to be seen. Second, the group generally failed to achieve uh, much at all by way of agreement, in part because of U.S. reluctance on climate change control agreements and other things. But the focus on the Putin-Trump meeting detracted from virtually everything else that the G20 tried to focus on. Uh, so that you might ask, what's the point of these G20 meetings? Uh, they're expensive talk fests, which attract enormous public display of lack of confidence in these individual leaders. And uh, arguably, the G20 uh, has served out its purpose and shouldn't be repeated at all again. It's a waste of everybody's taxpayer money, and it achieves nothing. But uh, I don't think I've seen anyone suggesting that in any of the Anglo-American newspapers uh, because the platform it presents for, for national leaders to look more important than they are uh, is too valuable to the political class, so they like uh, performing. It, it's a case of monkeys uh, preferring the organ, and they don't care uh, a, a, at all about the organ grinder so long as he plays a tune, the monkeys do the dancing, and everybody watches. Well, the two monkeys that counted were, in this particular grinding episode, were Trump and Putin. And because so much depends on uh, the U.S. war against Russia for Europe, Europe would be a lot better off if sanctions were lifted, but will not be better off if sanctions are not. Uh, a lot depended on what happened. Uh, you didn't have to be a genius to figure out that not much would happen, and very little did. The irony is that there's a blackout on the real news as deep in Russia to, in order to make Mr. Trump and Mr. Putin look to have been uh, productive together, whereas in, in Washington, uh, because there's a campaign from the Clintonites and the all sorts of people to overthrow Mr. Trump, there's a, an attempt to make uh, his performance at uh, the, the, the meeting with Putin look dismal. Uh, uh, so the truth of the matter is oddly perceived, exaggerated in Washington, uh, completely blacked out in Moscow. But the truth of the matter is that Mr. Trump is incapable of handling a two-hour meeting with anybody. <laughs> the man's brain doesn't work properly. And he showed that to the Russian side without any doubt, though the Russian side is much too polite to say so publicly. There's plenty of evidence that it was obvious. And the most obvious evidence that the American side knew it were the admissions that the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson made in his uh, audio transcript, the briefing he gave the press after the meeting. So if you go to the story I've uh, done, you can open the, the Tillerson tape. You can also listen and watch the Putin press conference. Watch it in, in Russian. You can, listen, you can read it in English.
So you just focus on that evidence and what do you come up with? In the first place, the reason the meeting was scheduled for 30 minutes is the American side doesn't want to expose their man to more than 30 minutes. And 30 minutes divided in half by with interpreters is a very short period of time. And that's because the United States surrounding Mr. Trump do not trust him to understand what's going on and are fearful of what he might say, not because they believe he understands the issues, but because they're certain he does not. So after the 30-minute mark, between the 30-minute mark and the 60-minute mark, according to Tillerson, several efforts were made by Tillerson to stop the meeting and get Trump out of there. Then Tillerson says, at the 60-minute mark, Mrs. Trump, that's Melania Trump, uh, came into the room to try to take her husband out. Now, I'm sorry if, if this is a surprise to the listeners, but it's incredible. Not in the entire history of the world, let alone the modern history of the United States, has the wife of a president interrupted a meeting in order to stop the president conducting business with another country. It's incredible. It's so incredible. You ask yourself, why isn't it on the front page of every newspaper in the world that the president of the United States wife tried to tell him to shut up? It's incredible. But that's what Tillerson revealed, thinking it unimportant and a joke, at the 60-minute mark. And then from then on, there were another 60 minutes and you can learn what those 60 minutes were about from Putin's description. They covered Syria, in which they purportedly agreed to a ceasefire in a small section of south southwestern Syria, which was signed by the United States, by Russia, and guess who? Jordan. Not Syria, Jordan. But the real power in the southwest of Syria is Israel, and Israel flies over that area every day, bomb Syrian force. I mean, it's a waste of time to even talk about a ceasefire signed with Jordan. What's Jordan in that area compared to Israel? Israel counts, and what Israel intends to do is whatever it intends to do, and nothing the United States, according to Mr. Trump, will make any difference. So there's been no solution on Syria, and they weren't capable of talking about it then. Second, on Ukraine. Allegedly, the sides reached an agreement, but it was announced earlier that Mr. Tillerson would send his special emissary to discuss the Ukraine with Russia in the hope of reaching an agreement on reducing violence between the two sides along the line of contact in eastern Ukraine, the so-called Minsk Agreement. And who does Mr. Tillerson appoint? A man with a famously Aryan name of Kurt Volker. I mean... Reminding everybody who invaded the Ukraine in 1941, reminding everybody that it, it is a man of fanatical anti-Russian attitudes as uh, a CIA analyst, as a National Security Council staff man, and as ambassador of the United States to NATO. Kurt Volker is no more progressive or capable of negotiating with the Russians than his predecessor, Victoria Newland a Jewish lady who represented the uh, overthrow of Mr. Yanukovych. The two of them are peas in the same pod. 
and the, the, the idea that Trump and Putin agreed on this as, as an advance on peacemaking in the Ukraine is absurd. Then there was one other, there was the argument over whether the Russia had interfered with the American election. Apparently, from Mr. Tillerson's account, there was no discussion of U.S. interference in uh, other people's elections. And what did they decide? They decided in a working group to discuss cybersecurity. Well, they'll be discussing that forever, but one of the things they will not be discussing is uh, each side's capability to penetrate the other side because that's what countries at war with one another do. And we are in war of, a, of an unusual kind. And we're on several fronts, the Syrian front, the Ukrainian front, the cybersecurity front. In short, if these were the three big agreements, they certainly didn't come out of that session. They certainly didn't come out of two hours in which the U.S. side tried to drag its man out of uh, the room and what, what have we come up with? Well, according to Mr. Putin, relations have been established. Uh, I won't rehash the story. You can see the analysis of his words and you can watch him physically controlling himself. Because for Putin, this was a deep disappointment. And more, the stakes of that meeting were very big in Moscow. I'll explain how. It's a complete reversal of what Americans who are opposed to Trump and Americans who are opposed to Russia or the editorialists of the Times, the Guardian, the Telegraph, the Financial Times think. They think that Mr. Putin is aggressively expanding the Russian empire, invading all these countries, and if he isn't stopped now, uh, he will take over the Baltic states, etc., etc., Poland, next, and so on. That in Moscow, there is the, a hope represented by the spokesman for Mr. Putin, Dmitry Peskov, that Mr. Trump can be uh, reinforced for the purpose of improving relations with Russia and dismantling the sanction system and allowing Russia and the United States to go back to business as usual. On the other hand, there are others, the Russian intelligence services, the general staff of um, the military services and the defense ministry who believe uh, that this is not the way the United States is trending, that Mr. P Trump does not control anything real, and that underneath the surface there is uh, expanding threats on every front, nuclear weapons targeting, anti-missile missile systems targeting, naval encroachments in the Black Sea. I could go on and on and on. And not only the Syrian front, but the Balkans front, the North African front, it doesn't stop. So from, a, uh, from one point of view of the, among the advisors to the president of Russia, there is the view that the United States cannot be stopped by this president and that people like Peskov should stop causing a delusion and advising President Putin that Mr. Trump is their biggest, best hope. When this meeting happened and proved to Putin, you can see it on his face, you can see it in his body, and for sure you can read it in what he says. Mr. Putin was disappointed at what he saw was unmistakable. No serious president ever has been told to leave the room by his wife in order to go to a concert or whatever she thought. She was sent in to stop him opening his mouth. Now, that is so dramatic. 
the disappointment for Putin turns into a domestic political problem for Dmitry Peskov and a very large establishment of people he controls who are opposed by the military and intelligence services in their approach to the future. So what happened in Hamburg between those two, Trump and Putin, has huge reverberations in Moscow, only you can't read about it in the foreign press because they don't understand it, and you can't read about it in the Russian press because it's been blacked out by Peskov. So it's interesting. We see that for all of Donald Trump's bluster and changing of policies he talked about in his election and even since then he's essentially been entirely boxed in by the normal military industrial complex Uh, well look uh boxed in implies that he's a victim and it's certainly true that presidents come into the white house thinking they have considerably more power than they Uh, turn out to have. I worked for four years for Jimmy Carter during the Carter administration. Uh, I'm pretty familiar with the illusions that presidents who come from uh, non-Washington political environments like uh, Carter came from, but at least Carter came from uh, managing a state, a significant state, a great state of Georgia. Notwithstanding all of that, the fact is that Uh, Mr. Trump isn't boxed in because the man doesn't know what the box is. He has, it's not just inexperience. An intelligent man uh, like Carter, like Roosevelt, like Obama, like Clinton, like Reagan even, can learn quickly. Mr. Trump can't learn for various reasons, which we don't get in, have to get into. I'm not arguing the case for Mrs. Clinton. Mrs. Clinton was an utterly corrupt and dangerous candidate for president and dangerous for the world. I concentrated on the corruption of of flows of money from uh, the Ukraine into her campaign and into her family. I'm not, this is not a discussion about who would have been better to win the US election. This is a discussion about Uh, the future of the world now that the United States is run by a person like Mr. Trump and the rest of the U.S. government reflected with like Mr. Tillerson, uh, General Mattis and so on. The problem for Russia, the, the part that I focus on each day, the problem that I'm professionally committed to for the last quarter century, the problem for Russia is also the problem for the rest of Europe. If there's the level of economic warfare between the United States and Russia, uh, if that escalates, Europe will suffer deeply and permanently. And this can't be repaired by believing that the President of the United States, Mr. Trump, can do anything about it because he can't. He's incapable. He's not mentally up to the job. Well, on that positive note, John, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Tom. I hope we haven't upset everybody for lunch. And uh, I welcome more readers and more criticism through the website. And uh, I hope, Tom, that uh, you'll let me back if uh, the chorus of negative uh, deserves some sort of mutual response here. But it's been a pleasure being on, and I look forward to another opportunity. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sun Ra and his orchestra. 
and you are now listening to another Sun Ra track, song number one. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Thank you.